Bonjour et bienvenue. You are listening to You Are So French, Success Stories à la Française. The podcast talking about success stories of French people in Australia. I am Aurélie, I'm from France and I've been living in Melbourne for many years. Since my beginnings down under, I've always been passionate about hearing the stories of my fellow French who found their place, their mission or their purpose so far away from their homeland. I always have so many questions to ask them. Did they have a dream when they moved to Australia? Or did their aspiration develop with their life here? And really, how did they make it happen? Our guest will share what it means to undertake a project out of their comfort zone, the cultural differences they faced, and how being French in Australia has been a bonus, or perhaps sometimes a challenge, in their endeavors. I invite you to follow inspiring journeys into different fields, entrepreneurship, personal development, relationship, or career, to name only a few. While everyone has his own definition of success and ways to reach it, courage, determination, confidence, and intuition seem to always be part of the recipe. The achievement of something positive. This is what success stories mean here and what we will discuss with passion, honesty, and of course, a bit of an accent. In three words, à la française. After two episodes in Perth, we are back in Melbourne, where we have the pleasure to meet with Nicolas Fleury. Nicolas is the French-born, French horn player of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. This is already quite an introduction. With generosity and a sincere enthusiasm for the city he chose to call home, Nicolas is sharing his Australian story and why Melbourne makes his heart sing. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respect to their elders, past and present. Bonne écoute. Bonjour Nicolas. Hi, bonjour. Thank you for being our guest today on You Are So French. And a special thanks because when we started to talk to record this podcast, you suggested that we would do it in person. And I think that was a wonderful idea. And then you organized for us to have a space to record in the ABC building where the MSO, so the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. is based. And you are a musician of the MSO. We will develop more about this. But yeah, thank you for making that happen. It's a pleasure. Sorry if you can hear some of my colleagues practicing next door or in the corridor. It's kind of part of the fun. Yes, I think that will be a beautiful um, background for our conversation today. First of all, and I'm sure you get that all the time, you are French and you play the French horn. I'm sure when you present yourself, you must get people smiling a lot. Yes, a lot. That's kind of the catchphrase of people when I say it. those two things at the same time, they always jump to that. Which is funny. It's been a while since I've been living in an English-talking country, since I'm 18 years old. So, yeah, I've heard it many times. <laughs> it doesn't make much sense, in fact, because we'll talk about the French horn and maybe why it's called the French horn, but you'll see that actually there's not real connection that we really know historically. So the French horn has nothing to do with France? Not really, because throughout Europe, the horn was the, the hunting horn, that we all know. The only reason we believe it's called the French horn is because of French developed a right-hand technique to be able to play the instrument a bit more subtly about most of the time. And that's why from the hand horn, it became the French horn, 
And I guess we kept that the French horn because the English horn is a completely different horn. It's part of the oboe family. So it's a completely different instrument. So I guess we kept the French horn, but you might be very interested or not, but the International Horn Society decided to remove the word French from the French horn. So now we just play the horn. But they are different kinds of horns. Back, of course, in history, we have what we call the hunting horn, which we also some paintings with. So on above your body to go hunting. This is a this is a root of our instrument, and even in the in the music today, we can hear a lot of even in John Williams when we play Star Wars, the horn calls da 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 di. It's kind of a root of hunting, right? But then from that instrument of hunting, it became an instrument of salon at the time of Mozart. Mozart created this orchestra, which called the Mozart Orchestra, with two oboes, two horns, and strings. From a, a moment where we would play the horn with a bell up like this, very loudly, we put the horn down and the right hand in the bell. This is why now we hold it that way. People often ask, what do you put your hand in the bell? It's just, that's how you hold an instrument. From that moment, from Mozart, the horn became a much more subtle instrument. And the French particularly developed the right hand technique to have access to many different sound and notes of a scale. And that's why it was called the French horn at the time. And we kept it for all the way to 2000. And nowadays we're trying to call it the horn. But it takes a while to get used to a new name for an instrument. Okay, well, thank you for this lesson. I don't know if people are interested in that. Yeah, no, I I find it interesting. Yeah, the funny fact of the day, exactly. Well, we are very lucky because today you have your horn. Many people may actually wonder, what does this sound? So if you wouldn't mind to do some scales for us. Yes, I'll, I'll show you a few of my daily routine and exercises. Thank you so much, Nicola. Let's talk about you because this is what it is about today. Before talking about your life in Australia, which is your present, can you please take us back in time and tell us what was your life before you arrived down under? My life was in London before I moved here. I studied in London, so when I left France when I was 18 to study in London. And then I worked in the UK for all my life before moving in Melbourne. So I was part of the Royal Family Orchestra in London. I guess the life there was not for me. It was wonderful between 20 and 30. And then I thought I want something else. I was incredibly lucky to win the job here. And that's the reason why I moved in Australia is for the, the position in the MSO. But how did you start playing for orchestra in London? What was your background and your study and what yeah. took you so there? So I was lucky to study the horn since I'm seven years old. In France, we were very lucky on that musical education. It was a very good system. When all kids at school are allowed to try the instrument and see whether they're good at it. And then if you are, you can you know, have that on the side of your study since you're 
seven years old. Uh, every afternoon for me, two afternoons, Monday afternoon and Thursday afternoon, I would be at the conservatoire doing scales, doing some singing, doing some solfege, which is the theory behind music, how to read music. And uh, so that's always been part of, of my life. And in fact, I remember when I was eight telling my parents that I want to be like my teacher, my home teacher. So I want to do what he does. I want to tour the world. I want to play music for a living. I want to teach to younger people my craft. So it was very easy for me to pick that kind of field. So it never was a question mark, should I be a musician or not? It just happened. Uh, dedication, of course, because it's a lot of practice, you know. If you want to play football in the evening or if you want to practice your instrument, well, for me, the answer was one way only. Most days. Yeah, so after that, you do your study in what we call college and lycée, which is like, you know, school, all the school and high school here. And I went to study in my university in London. Similar to lots of jobs around, you learn your craft, you audition, you fail, you audition again, you get it, you audition again for something better, and so on and so on. And you build a career. So I was freelancing at first in London, and then I got a few jobs that I loved, and then went for another job that is slightly better. I thought I reached the, the top of what I could do in London, being principal in the Royal Family Orchestra, and still I wasn't happy. But not for musical reasons, the orchestra was fantastic, it's just a lifestyle. And that pushed me in a way to see what there was around in the world. And I love learning more and more English every day. I love speaking my second language. I was very tempted by Australia. I came on tour here quite a few times during my 20s. And I always thought, if there is a job in Melbourne, which I love, I will go for it. And it happened and I got it. So happy days. Mm, okay, so that was Melbourne. Absolutely. I came here to do a residency with a London orchestra and we stayed here 10 days and it was unbelievable. I mean, I can't even explain. We were very lucky because the 10 days were, were very sunny and it was a beautiful weather and it was a November month, I think. It was miserable in London. And coming here, the weather was beautiful. We had a few days off, so we drove Great Ocean Road with a few colleagues. It was just a dream. And this is where I actually got to know the people of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra because they came to a concert and then we, we got to be friends. And the, the beautiful thing about it is Abby, who is my second horn here in the MSO, was one of the person who was like, oh, you know, you, we have a job going on. You should probably consider it in the future. So it's funny to see those little connections. She's still in the orchestra. We still play together every day. So I understand that living an international life was always part of the plan since you were a little boy. Yes, I think so. I was always very interested to, to travel the world to perform. Having said that, I realized quickly that when people said, oh, we're going on tour, it doesn't mean there's a lot of leisure. It's most of the time the schedule would be 5 a.m. check-in at Heathrow Airport to get to whatever city and even far, like I'm talking like, St. Petersburg or Helsinki, sometimes even cities like in America, we barely have a day off and then it's straight to rehearsal or concert, traveling the next morning. So there's no time off really. So I realized quickly that I'm not going to see the world like that. I'm going to see the airports, the hotel and the concert halls, which is good. And good dinners after, after work is always, after a good concert, a good dinner is always one of the highlights of the day. You arrived in Melbourne. What were your first impressions? And also, did you think that you would stay in Melbourne for a long time? Did you see yourself settling in Melbourne? Yes, because I thought about it a lot before moving. You don't move here. You don't leave a job, a great job in London to move here without thinking it's a long-term thing. Of course, in our jobs, there is a trial period, which is six months. So for six months, 
not only we don't know whether we were going to like it, but the orchestra doesn't know they're going to like us. Of course, you auditioned before, you have come to do a, a recital and to play in the orchestra, and they trust you that you can be the next whatever. But you have to prove for the next six months with meeting every month to tell you how you do if they want you to play differently. So it's not all that black and white. You know, there is a moment, a transition of six months usually where if you don't like it, you can probably say it's not for me and go back. For me, that was not happening. I moved here, I bought a car, first things first, and I got on with things and I had no doubt in a way, I had no doubt that they would like what I do because I was so committed to just deliver. And I had no doubt that I would not like it. For me, it was the dream come true. And actually, I left uh, Europe in February to move to Australia. So, of course, once more, the weather was amazing here. It was terrible there. So it was such a, a feeling of ease. And the connection here in Melbourne is, to Europe is so big anyway. It does feel sometimes like I'm in London on the South Bank. The similar situation, there's a big hall, concert hall uh, on the Thames in London. Similar here, Hamer Hall is where we play every week. It's right on the river. It's just a different river. So I felt very much at home straight away. And what I love about Melbourne, you just jump in a tram in five minutes, you're pretty much everywhere. I can walk everywhere. I can go to the beach. I can go to the museum. NGV is fantastic. I mean, it's so easy to get around. This was my first shock compared to the hour of tube I had to go through in London to go from uh, my apartment at the time there to the concert hall we were playing in. It felt like I gained so much time in my day and quality time. What does a day of rehearsal, practicing and performing look like? A typical working day for you okay. in Melbourne? We don't have such a, like nine to five jobs as such with free weekends. It's a very uh, difficult thing for some of our partners who are not musicians because it's difficult to organize things in advance. Because, you know, in the art, if someone wants to book uh, the MSO for an event and if the orchestra is free, and then I think we should do it because, you know, it's important that we're flexible. However, a typical week, usually on Monday, is usually our rest day. Our rest day is a practice day for us. Most of us teach because we love teaching. We have been given amazing information from our teachers and we want to give it to other people, to students. And because we're in the MSO, a lot of children reach out to us to play to us because they see us as what they want to do. So that's the way to get there is to play to those people. So Monday for me often is a teaching day slash practice day. So I would try to teach an hour or two because all the lessons we give are individual lessons, which is one of the beauty of what we do. There's no class as such. It's one-to-one -one with your teacher. You can ask questions. It's so individual as such. So it's, it's quite a wonderful experience when I look back. So, and then it would be practice time, usually two to four hours, depending if I need to rest my lips because it's quite a physical instrument or if I need to build some stamina. Three hours practice on Monday at some point. And then it's a bit of learning the music. So sometimes it uh, consists to just listen to the symphony we might play with the headphones and with the music to just know what you're doing, know where you are, know how you want to play, what's the story of the, of the music you're going to play because you don't play. Music is a, is, a, is a way to express yourself. So you need to know what you're talking about when you go on stage to play something. So all this work behind the scene is probably not uh, seen by the audience and shouldn't be, but it's a very important part of what we do. Usually we start to rehearsal on Tuesday with the whole orchestra. So we'll have rehearsal from usually 10 to 4. Of course, when rehearsal is at 10, you 
you do you play with the orchestra at 10 a.m. So I'm there at 9 a.m. doing a full, lovely warm up uh, because you can't just pick up the instrument and play. So a full warm up at 9 a.m. usually, and then 10 to 4 rehearsal with an hour break for lunch. Often we have meetings, we have auditions around this to appoint new players in the orchestra because there are quite a few vacancies. Meetings about what the next season is going to be next year and the year after that, who we would like to have uh, as a guest soloist, guest conductors. All this stuff is something we spend a lot of time doing in our, in our schedule. The Wednesday would be a similar rehearsal day. Uh, we have usually two full days rehearsal for a program, so it would be 10 to 4 again. Again, around that, sometimes meetings, sometimes whatever. And then usually Thursday is the first concert. That, that can shift a little bit depending on when we play. And it would be usually 10 to 1 would be a dress rehearsal. So we are in the hall, we're playing through the program, making sure everything works perfectly. And then first concert on Thursday night, 7.30. And then usually Friday night and potentially Saturday or Sunday, another concert. Sometimes matinee, people like to come at odd times, 11 p.m., some, 11 a.m., sorry sometimes uh, 2 p.m. and we even do a new concert for newcomers and it's at 11 p.m. I think or 9 p.m. so something very late for young people who want to go out for dinner first and have a few drinks and then come to a concert so we want to attract new audiences as well and so we are very different um, schedule week to week it's hard to sometimes organize life. When you're not working what do you like to do in Melbourne and Victoria? (laughs) I have a a great passion, which is uh, judo martial arts. So I, I like to organize a, a bit of judo sessions. And actually, I have a French teacher there. His name is Emilien Freund, and a wonderful man. Uh, I think you probably would like to have him on your podcast one day, maybe. So yeah, I, I take some time to do that. I like an active life. So we, me and my partner often go on hikes. We love walking by the seafront all the way to Half Moon Bay, which is my favorite beach. I don't know why people say of Melbourne that there's not much beautiful beaches. I don't get it. I've seen some amazing stuff in Victoria. Those are my passion, and I guess music is always there too. So I do go to concerts quite a lot. Another passion of mine is teaching, so it's all back to, to music really. But I wish I had more time to do other things like traveling. Sadly, the problem is with our jobs that if I do travel, uh, let's say I take a day off, I need a day to get back in shape to perform. If I take a week off, I need a week to get back in shape. So often we would get a couple of days off when people would say, oh, let's just go somewhere and do something. Often I'm not capable to do that unless I can bring my instrument and practice for an hour here or here, which is sometimes frustrating. But if I didn't play my instrument, I would travel a little bit more. There's so much to see in this country. You may have been traveling for work, which is not really traveling, but you've been playing in capital cities in Australia and also in regional Australia. How was it? How did you feel? What did you experience? Of course, there's a special feeling to perform in the Sydney Opera House. It's, uh, yeah, I guess it's uh, such an emblematic uh, building that it's, uh, it's a great... And actually, they renewed the concert hall. Now they redone the all inside of the concert hall. And the concert hall now sounds a lot better than it used to. That's uh, good to know for the people who want to go back to a concert there, maybe. So yeah, that was a special place to, to perform. Yeah, I've been lucky to perform in pretty much all the capital city. Sadly, I had quite a few cancellations, of course, with the COVID time, where I was supposed to do a, a great chamber music tour in each uh, capital cities. 
sadly that was cancelled for most of them. What I loved when I traveled in Australia is, I'm going mad about it, but the weather is so nice when you go up north straight away, even in the winter. Going into smaller places is pretty cool too. I love staying in those little motels and then you walk to the concert hall and you meet the community of small places, Ballarat, Bendigo, Shepparton. We do a lot of that with the MSO. It's very important for us. We love doing those regional tours. We go on a bus all together, 80 people in the bus, and we just go in the cities and it's important to deliver great music making to, to smaller communities like this because they don't have the opportunity often to, to, to hear that. What is the most remote part in Australia you played? Oh my God, I played, in, I think the concert I did in Orange, they, won't, they wouldn't call it Orange, they would call it Orange, <laughs> or Orange, I don't know, it's in New South Wales, so it's like an hour and a half flight from Sydney, and we stay there, and the, the pub next to the concert hall had, ready, had made ready some meals for us, for between rehearsal and concert, and it was an old kind of cinema or something like that, I can't remember. Tiny, very dry acoustic. And I remember there was a French artist, François Lelou, who was uh, with a great oboist and conductor. He introduced himself with such a French uh, uh, flamboyance and he said, I'm so happy to be in Orange today. And <laughs> the audience laughed a lot at it. It was very funny. I think that's the most remote place I have played in. However, for leisure, I've been all the way to Exmouth, which is far north of West Australia. And that was epic. Probably one of the most beautiful places I've seen so far in the country. It's very precious when you live in Australia, in Melbourne or Sydney, and you have the chance to go and explore. Because like in every country, really, but especially in Australia, you haven't really experienced Australia if you haven't left, you know, these capital cities. Of It's course, you need a car here. But if you have a car, it's amazing on weekends to just go and see a national park and Sometimes, uh, I know my partner is a big fan of camping. Me, I'm a bit more scared about this thing. Well, scared is not the word, but Wilson's Prom is one of the most beautiful things we have done. I can't wait to have a, a bit more time off here and here and to, to do some more exploring. Is it because of the lovely animals you can meet in Australia when you go in the, in the nature that you're a bit uh, reluctant? Yeah. I wouldn't say scared, but I have respect for nature and I don't want to play as a hero when you could be bit and ruin your holidays. But, you know, I, I don't want to play with that. And it's the same with the ocean. When it's a big ocean with big waves, you know, you've got to respect it. And uh, I don't try to, to show that I can surf big waves when I can't. Because <laughs> yeah. I just can't surf anyway. I think in Australia, you really understand the, the power of the nature, for Absolutely. sure. So you mentioned you are teaching music. And I wanted to ask you, if you compare the way you teach music here in Australia compared to the musical education that you receive in France, what can you say about it? I think one of the main things is that in France, it was pretty much free of charge. So it was almost adapted to the school. And I think from memory, but my parents would have been maybe 200 euros a year. And that included the rent of an instrument by, with the conservatoire and all the, the lessons, which were two days a week uh, for the entire duration of the year. In here, if you want to be a musician, you need to be able to pay for private lessons, which is what I, what I witness around. Of course, there are a few schools that offer um, a few things, but it's not quite the standard of the French medical education. And I'm trying my best to bring that here, you know, um, trying to talk to important people because music education is it's not to be a professional musician. 
It's a language, it's a foreign language that you need to learn how to read. It's an international language. So you can speak it with whoever on the planet. You can sing to each other. You can play music to each other if you know how to read it. And of course, it teaches you patience. It teaches you uh, resilience because you're not going to be amazing straight away. It takes quite some time to make a nice sound. And so all these things are value of life that are important. And that's why we teach music to kids. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about playing an instrument is you don't have your accent that can show where you're from. Or... True, however... Each country has a school of playing, right? So, for example, if you speak to a Spanish person, they usually have an amazing articulation. Like, because of the way they speak, it's so... So you can hear them when they play a scale. It's so clean and crispy. Someone who is from England would have slightly warm sounds, so, you know, it'll be a, so you can really hear it in the instrument, certainly in the wind instruments. Yeah. But... Obviously, if you practice to blend in, you can pr pretty much hide that. You lived in London and now you are French in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Did you see any differences in being French in Australia compared to in the UK? Somehow, I seem to embrace the fact that I'm a French person living in Australia more than when I was in London. In London, I always wanted to blend in and be part of like everyone else, you know, not... In here, I feel like I have more of a personality and I can just be myself. And I am what I am, you know, I have roots and I lived in foreign countries more than I have lived in France now. I could say I'm a citizen of the world, but I feel very much kind of not hiding that I'm a French person living in Australia. And that's quite a change in, 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 in the mind, actually. Do you feel like there is maybe more sympathy, you know, from the people when you say, I'm French? Because I feel like we are allowed to experience that here mm. in Australia when you are French. Straight away, you have the sympathy of people. Yeah, I guess because people think straight away, oh my God, that person left its family and its friend and everything so far away to bring something to our country. I guess, I, guess, I guess so. That's probably one of the, the facts that uh, would give people a bit of empathy towards us living here and making life here. Well, obviously, you are an artist. Music is your life. And we just went through almost two years of lockdowns, especially here in Australia. And you're also French, so your family live on the other side of the world. How was it to experience this very special time, yeah. not being able to perform and to, to see your family? Yeah, it was, just, it was a horrible time for everyone. So I'm not going to say it was more horrible for us than it was for others. However, the, the sad point of what we do for a living is playing concert for um, 3,000 people every day or every three, four times a, a week. So, of course, we would have been the first to stop to do so. And, of course, we would have been the last to come back in. So what is the longest lockdown in Australia? It was sort of the longest lockdown for artists and certainly musicians who play in an orchestra because we're all so close to each other. So that was forbidden for so long. We had to sit separated by a meter or two. To, to, oh, it, was, uh, it was all a bit traumatic, really. And I can genuinely say that the reason why I did not want this to be done on Zoom is because I don't do Zoom anymore. This, this kind of brings me back to a time where this is the only thing we could do is Zoom. And if I can meet some people in life to do these kind of things, I would... Yeah, it was traumatic because I was in a small flat as well, so practice was pretty much out of the window. I would practice a little bit with my mute. Your standard go down, and of course, it's like if you're an athlete, if you don't do your, 
your sport, your, your standard goes down and then your confidence goes down and then you sort of think, oh, am I going to be able to come back on stage? Was a big anxiety for lots of people. What I used to do to keep me motivated and my students motivated is I would record some challenges for them, some uh, technical challenges or some kind of I would play a tune to them and I would need to identify where is that tune in music history, so in the repertoire. And it was something that kept me going for a long time. And then I got quite creative because I found a spot around the MCG where I could actually go and it was covered and I could actually practice outdoor without bothering anyone. And actually I got a lot of attention from rounders around who, who would come and say, hey, well, thanks, to, thanks for playing music. And I got talking with quite a few people at a safe distance, don't you worry. <laughs> Even the police came and said hi once. It was, it was sweet. But yeah, so I found a few ways to to keep playing. In the second lockdown particularly, I got more creative because my partner was working from home as well. So it's not like you can blow for four hours some, uh, some scales and some concertos. Do you see yourself moving back to France one day to live there? I don't think so, no, 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 because of course my, my, my immediate family is here, but my immediate family is what I see in the future too, is maybe a child with my partner or, and so on. So then, then their life is here. So it would be unfair to just say, actually, I'm, I'm off to my roots. Just, you know, I, I, yeah, no, I, I, I visit a lot because I think it's important to, um, to do so. And so I try to go twice a year before COVID, maybe three times a year, which is uh, not only expensive, also tiring for the, for the body. We've all been there, but it's something I want to do. And if I can uh, avoid the June month to go to French summer, I would. Do you keep in touch with the French musical scenes, like the young talent playing maybe the horn? Interesting. I, I keep more in touch with the London scene because I've been there for so long and I didn't study in Paris, I studied in London. So I, I do keep in touch with uh, lots of colleagues in London. And uh, of course, sometimes they come on tour in Australia. So for example, the London Symphony Orchestra is coming on tour in May here and I would be in the orchestra with them to play. They were very kind to, to call me to play that trip with them. So I'll, we will be performing in Sydney. You should all come and listen to that beautiful concert at the Sydney Opera House on the 3rd of May. A bit of advertisement doesn't hurt, does it? Of course. Um, so yeah, I keep in touch a lot with them because I feel like I want to know what's going on. I just found out that my job in the Royal Philharmonic was just given to a, a great artist, Ben Bentholm, if you hear us. So congratulations to him. So yeah, I keep in touch with the London scene more than the French scene. No recommendation of French music to listen to? Oh yeah, at the absolutely. French music is special to me because it's talks to me like I really understand it. You have all to listen to La Mer by Debussy, which is absolutely fantastic. You all heard the Bolero by Ravel, which we performed a few months ago, which was one of the highlights of the season for sure. Yeah, Debussy and Ravel are probably my f most favorite um, French composer. Ravel's string quartet is something people should listen to. And in the French contemporary music scene? I have to say, I've not kept up that much with the French contemporary music scene. My contemporary music scene would be people like Olivier Messiaen, but those people are gone now. So it's not what you would call, I guess, uh, contemporary music. But yeah, from the 20th century, uh, I reckon you should listen to Francis Poulenc and Olivier Messiaen. Um, for the more contemporary composer, Thierry Esquesh, actually, uh, is wrote some beautiful music that I would really like to perform in the future. I'm a bit of an old-fashioned kind of guy. I like, I like all the things that have passed the test of time, really. What advice would you give to the younger Nicola, just landing in Melbourne, about to settle and to join the MSO? 
I've only been here four years, so I still feel like... <laughs> This is anniversary month for you, actually. Uh, what are we? Uh, February? February? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah I mean, I, I kind of love discovering as you go. You know, you learn from your own experience, I guess. And I did mistakes and I recovered from it. And it's, uh, it's nothing that different from living in London when I just left my study. Because London, as you, as you know, is so expensive and... It's so overwhelming. So I don't have that feeling here. I'm pretty relaxed here. I would probably say it would be great if I had a British passport because I could have Medicare and all these things. And I didn't know about this at the time. So these little things, but those are small things of life. What visa did you, did you arrive on? I arrived, uh, I was very lucky to be very looked after by the MSO team and the lawyers of the orchestra who pretty much did all this homework for me. I was on a working visa sponsored by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. That was for two years. And then I applied for permanent residency. And my thing is called Distinguished Talent Visa. And it's a permanent residency. Uh, so that's been applied. It's uh, still up. Uh, I'm waiting for it, basically. And it should be there soon, I hope, to feel like a proper uh, Australian citizen, really. Yeah, but eventually you will, you will get uh, citizenship. Yes, I think so. I think I'd like to have both citizenship and both country allow it. So I think it's uh, the way forward after that permanent residency would be to do the test to be an Australian citizen. What would be the key milestones of your Australian journey so far? Or maybe like a special performance? I think one night was worth very special. And it's when the, we did a big John Williams Concert. If people don't know John Williams, he's the, the composer who wrote all the music for a few movies that you may have heard. Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, Jurassic Park, um, Star Wars. And this music is, uh, is wonderful and it speaks to such a wide audience. So we did our first Cinema Music Ball concert, was it last year, which started to be almost normal in the audience. So there was no cap or very high cap. And I remember there was something like 14,000 people in the Sydney Music Ball in the Botanical Garden in, in Melbourne. And it was an electric night. It was unbelievable to, to see what effect we have on people and to see the, to hearing the theme of Jurassic Park and, and E.T. And they were all like, wow, we missed it. And it was a beautiful night in Melbourne. It was live on YouTube probably, I think. And it was such a special event. So yeah, that was a special night. These concerts are really amazing. They are free. Absolutely so... free. Bring your picnic, sit on the grass and just let yourself be on board on the journey, musical journey. I was lucky to experience a few of them. Not that one last year, unfortunately, I missed out. But I must say, yeah, if um, if you are in Melbourne and you have the chance to to go, really, it's for me, it's like the the gift that uh, Melbourne gives to its people. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can actually go on YouTube and relive some of those uh, concerts because not only they're free for the people, but for the people who can't be in cinema music ball, like. My family back in France, they can tune up and see the concert on TV, on YouTube. And it's, uh, it's wonderful that people in regional Victoria who can't see the MSO live can actually put it on the TV and just follow a concert. I was in the audience last week when it was the mm -hmm. Tchaikovsky special. Tchaikovsky Festival, yeah. I didn't know that the last sequence, the opening of 1812, yes, there are a few notes of La Marseillaise. Yeah, and it, I didn't know. And all of the sudden I was like, 
Oh, it yeah, sounds familiar. Because of the, the, the pieces about the wars between, you know. The, yeah, the I made my research after, and, but and that French, was a beautiful so that was surprise. A, a way of Tchaikovsky to just put that melody in. <laughs> so what is next for you, Nicolas? I was lucky to be in France for, for a month just to see my family during the, the, the break. Um, so now back at the orchestra, very busy. The orchestra has an amazing season ahead of itself and and pretty much on with the MSO every week for a little while. I would say one of the highlights of this season for me would be to see my friends from the London Symphony Orchestra and perform with them in Sydney. That would be another amazing thing to do. Uh, I'll be going on the guest with the Sydney Symphony a few times as well, and I'm looking forward to play a few more chamber music concerts, which is great. Chamber music is, uh, for people who are maybe not a musician, is when you play with a small group of people, duo, with two people, trio, quartets, quintets, sextets, septets, etc., octets, nonets sometimes even. I, I love doing this small-scale stuff, because when you play in an orchestra, you... Obviously, it's amazing, but you're one out of a hundred people, and it's kind of nice to feel like you have a voice and playing in a small setup. So I always cherish the, the chamber music scene. We are lucky in Australia to have a few amazing festivals. I was just in doing the Bendigo Chamber Music Festival, um, in obviously Bendigo, which was an amazing way to meet musicians and to play chamber music all together. Townsville has, a, has an amazing festival of chamber music. It's called the International Festival, Australian Chamber Music Festival. It's a very fancy. So check out the Townsville uh, website for that. It's it's amazing to be able to do some of that, and I will do lots of that in the near future. And um, I guess enjoy my time here. Do more hikes. See more of Australia a little bit. You know, we we go to go to Cairns. I, I always struggle to say the name of that city. I don't know if you Cairns. <laughs> Cairns. I always I can do it in a few months' time. I would love to go to Fiji. That's another project of ours with my partner. And uh, yeah, I guess just follow the follow the city. You probably see a lot of rugby. I'm a big rugby fan as well. And there's a, an amazing rugby scene here. And the World Cup is in France in a few months. So I probably would go back to France to see the World Cup of rugby union, not league. What are the challenges that you've been facing since you arrived in Australia? I mean, apart for COVID, I think that was the challenge. That was very traumatic. That was the Obviously, challenge. That was the biggest challenge of my <laughs> life, probably. You know what? I can't think of any. And I'm trying to think of little details of life. Like, no, I eat great bread. I, <laughs> I eat great pastries, great food. The weather, no? You're not bothered no, with the Melbourne so, weather? it's so much better than it was in London. The cold day in Melbourne is an average day in London. So for me, coming here, it's wonderful. And actually, what I love about the winter here is that it's the occasional beautiful day in the winter. And we can genuinely enjoy it for what it is. And also the beauty of this country, again, is you take a flight for an hour and you're somewhere that it's quite a bit warmer. Like, you know, go to Brisbane in the winter and off you go happy days you know so no the weather doesn't bother me at all I quite I quite enjoy this we are reaching the end of this conversation I just have three more questions for you mm -hmm. so what is the French word that you keep using even when you speak in English can it be a swear word it can merde this kind of small small little words that are probably bad and I shouldn't use them I struggle to <laughs> to, to, to not say it uh, or little words such like it talk like this little like bits and bobs of words that always come up to me that I can't erase them and I kind of don't want to it's part of who I am I guess what is the most French and the most Australian about you the most French would be probably the way I dress 
Like, I'm not kidding. Like, every time I, I, I walk into work, I go to colleagues who say, oh, you're so French the way you're dressed. And they're like, what do you mean? I've got a shirt from Zara. <laughs> no, no advertisement. But, or, you know, stupid jeans. And they keep saying you dress so French or stuff, stuff like that. So I, I don't quite understand that, but I get a French um, style to me that I guess is the most French. But maybe um, it's, a, it's an attitude more than... Probably, probably. Dress. I can't explain why. Well, you know, this podcast is all about that because it's called You Are So French, yeah, but no one can really explain it. It's just a way to yeah. be. And I guess my accent when I'm tired, particularly, I just go into like, I don't roll my R anymore mm. and I speak quite raw French accent in English. But look, it amuses people and as long as they understand me, I'm okay with it. Mm. For the most Australian part of me, I would say the lifestyle, I embrace it so much that it speaks to my soul, you know, like the, the, the I guess, the connection to, uh, to outdoor and dining and uh, barbecues and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's so me that I get to embrace it so much. That would be my most Australian side, probably. And last but not least, so everyone's definition of success is different. What will be the word to define your Australian success story? I think the most important word for me would be how welcomed I felt when I came here. It, it really touched my heart because, you know, you come into people's life and certainly in the orchestra, my colleagues, my friends, they're not only colleagues, they're people I spent my life with touring, performing on stage. There's so much chemistry and the way those people have made me feel so welcomed was mind-blowing like you know i feel like i could call so many of them at 3 a.m to ask for a favor and they will deliver and it's uh, it's probably just a feeling I'm, i won't do it guys don't worry <laughs> but i i felt so welcome so that's the biggest success i could ever think of is to be accepted as who i am and yet to be so welcomed by my friends and colleagues beautiful is there anything else you would like to add in this conversation i hope if people listen to this podcast from the uk or france even Do try Australia. Do come out. It's far, but God, it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful. The people are quite amazing and you'll eat well and you'll love it. I do have one more question. Where can we follow you, listen to your music? I am not a social media person, so I do have Facebook <laughs> and uh, I don't spend much time on um, what I call fake life, those virtual life. So you can follow the MSO because they have a lot of content which I would be on and I don't have a website either, but follow the MSO and you'll see me for sure. All right. Merci, Nicolas. Merci à vous. À bientôt. Au revoir. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and felt inspired to write your own success story, whatever you want it to be. You can find all the references in the note of the episode. I like hearing from you, so don't hesitate to share your feedback and suggest me new guests. You can find me on Instagram at youarsofrench.thepodcast or email me at youarsofrench.thepodcast at gmail.com. To finish, I would love it if you could help me make this podcast my success story by rating You Are So French, the podcast on your favorite streaming platform with stars, the more the better. You can also subscribe to never miss an episode and of course, tell your friends and family about it. Merci et à bientôt.